What's up, everybody? So I want to let you know that the Alpha Brain Golden Ticket Sweepstakes are still going on. And that's just a rad opportunity not only to stock up on your Alpha Brain or give Alpha Brain a try. Because if you haven't tried Alpha Brain, it's definitely one of those tools that's different than any stimulant you've had and gets your brain firing in an absolutely different way. And that's what our clinical research has shown, and that's what everybody who's tried it. You know, we've sold over a million bottles of Alpha Brain, and the results are in. It works. It's awesome. So this is a great opportunity, though, because if you get the Golden Ticket Sweepstakes, everybody is a winner, and there's a bunch of cool shit that we're giving away, from kettlebell sets to different other products, to discounts. Every single person is going to be a winner if you go to the golden ticket sweepstakes so check it out on it.com slash golden ticket and then enter the code and fill in the entry form there's going to be a grand prize for one of you which is going to be a trip out here to austin and on hq so you'll be able to come hang at the hq and do all the awesome on it things so definitely check it out go to on it.com slash golden dash ticket and get your 30 count or 90 count bottle of alpha brain Consciousness, mindset, health, relationship, business. Welcome to the Aubrey Marcus Podcast. What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Aubrey Marcus Podcast. It's you know, sometimes I get an opportunity to do a podcast with someone that I've been looking forward to for a very long time. This is one of those instances, as you've probably heard me talk about, one of my favorite books in the world is Fifth Sacred Thing. And right now I'm here with the author, Starhawk. So this is a real treat. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Thank you. It's really great to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So the reason you're here in Austin is you just launched your new book, City of Refuge. Yes. Which is the sequel to Fifth Sacred Thing. That's right. And so, so you're cruising the country <laughs> talking about your new book. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, a lot of people think it might be crazy to write a sequel to a book after 20 years. And they're probably right, but um, it's never actually stopped me from doing anything in my life. Well, what the counterpoint to that is maybe you wrote it 20 years ago, but it was so ahead of its time uh-huh, right. that maybe it was like it became really prescient, you know, mm-hmm. recently because that book, the ideas that you put forward were way, way beyond 1993 or 1996 or whatever that book came out. Yeah. Some of them were kind of eerily, almost prophetic. (laughs) Yeah, uh, absolutely. Some of them I hope are actually not prophetic. (laughs) Yeah. So So for people who aren't familiar with the book, you know, I really geek out on kind of utopian philosophy. And Mm -hmm. one of my favorite books of all time was Aldous Huxley's Island. Mm -hmm. And that was like, that was the book for me for a long time. It talks about a a world that you could recreate with different rituals and different rules and different morals and codes Mm -hmm. and, and how you could create a society from the ground up that functioned more efficiently than the one we have. And then, you know, so that was my book. And then I read The Fifth Sacred Thing and it was the taking that principle, you know, obviously its own flavor, its own color and advancing it in a lot of ways and placing it in conflict with a very real um, kind of dystopian culture and how when utopia and dystopia clash, how the resolution could be played out. And I thought the way that you did it in that book was just brilliant. For me, when I was writing The Fifth Sacred Thing, I was really wrestling with the question, how could a peaceful society defend itself against violence. I had been doing a lot of research for the book. The book I wrote previously is called Truth or Dare, Encounters with Power, Authority, and Mystery. And part of it is a historical examination of the transition from these matrifocal, uh, kind of goddess-centered, peaceable cultures that are actually at the root of European and Middle Eastern culture to these more warlike, patriarchal, dominator cultures way back in, you know, 3000, 4000, 5000 BC. And I was thinking about that transition and how bound up that was with war and conquest and violence, and then thinking about could it have been different? You know, is there a way for a culture that is based on peace to survive when it gets attacked without either? 
you know, being overrun or transforming itself into something like the culture that's attacking it. Mm-hmm. And um, but I decided not to set it in the past. I wanted to set it in the future because it seemed uh, more hopeful and to require less root, <laughs> less yeah. rooting around libraries and <laughs> footnotes and things like that. I wanted to do something where the research would be like backpacking and yeah. hiking around in the mountains and. Um, so in the fifth sacred thing, Northern California has become a peaceable, uh, multiracial, multicultural, ecologically balanced society after the meltdown, the environmental social meltdown of the country. But Southern California has gone the opposite direction and become militant, militarist and warlike and racially and culturally divided on every level. And so when the Southlands invade the North, the North has to decide how do we fight? How do we fight without losing what we are? Yeah. And it centers around Bird, who is a musician who sort of turns Gurria and goes down to the Southlands to fight, and Drone, who's a healer, uh, and Maya, who's the old woman, the storyteller, who's kind of the, the witness who's seen the whole century of progression of all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and the way you know the way you play out that conflict mm-hmm. for those of you who haven't read the book is just really really powerful. I mean, it it ascends to the higher principles of consciousness, mm-hmm. you know. And I think that's it's beautiful when you can see something played out like that because it's always, you know, even in some of my favorite movies, it's uh like take Avatar for example. Mm-hmm. You know, love that movie. It's great, but yeah, it's, me too. <laughs> it's still, it's still, you know, it's still, they still go to war. In and, the you end, know, yeah. in the end, it's yeah, still it's like, even nature says, all right, let's, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's yeah. still like very conscious, very cool, but mm-hmm. it's still, we decide for war. And yeah. I think the tactic that, you know, the peaceable northerners in fifth sacred thing take is to just offer them a place at the table. Yeah. You know, and that's, I think such a powerful, powerful thing. And we've seen that play out. You know, you've seen Gandhi, you know, take Mm -hmm. these methods and they're always very, very effective because violence breeds violence. Aggression breeds aggression. You know, that's just tends to be the way of the world. Mm. And if you diffuse a situation like that, you may take a few blows, but less than you would if you're fighting and, you know, you can change the hearts and minds of, of the aggressors. Because and I think I think inherently we are all good people. We are the same person, mm-hmm. you know, and that's the truth. So you have truth on your side <laughs> when you do that. Well, that's why Gandhi called when he was doing Satyagraha, which means literally truth force or soul force. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and the fifth sacred thing, their tactic is how do we get, at least even if we can't, subvert all the hearts and minds how do we get the ordinary soldiers to actually see that their interests would lie more with allying with us than continuing to fight for a system that actually is tremendously oppressive to them yeah Um, in the city of refuge without trying without spoiler (laughs) spoiler about say that in fifth sacred thing Uh, When they succeed in tossing out the bulk of the army and bringing a lot of the army over, then in City of Refuge, the question is, now what do we do with these guys? (laughs) Yeah. Uh Oh, (laughs) because they're not indoctrinated in the culture. Yeah, they're they're like from a completely different. You know, many of them have been raised and bred for the army and really have known no normal human life or education or anything. So... For me, City of Refuge really centered around the question, how can we build the new world when people are so deeply damaged by the old? So pretty much it's a book about right now. (laughs) (laughs) Right? I mean, that's really where we are. We have have communities that that are developing very consciously, Mm -hmm. and we have other people who are still on the other side interested Mm -hmm. in the warmongering and, um, you know, the solipsistic, you know, nature that has Mm -hmm. developed. Yeah, and we see this tremendous divide. You know, I think people are in deep distress overall, like economic, social, emotional distress. I think people sense that the systems we've put our faith in are 
breaking down all around us and serving fewer and fewer of us. Uh, And when people are in distress, you know, it's very easy to convince them that their distress is those bad people's fault Mm, over there. Scapegoats. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's also an opportunity, I think, when things are breaking down to create something new, to say, okay, if these systems aren't working, this actually gives us a chance to say, what kind of place would we like to be living in? What kind of world would we like to create? How do we make that happen? How do we actually build a world on principles of justice and caring for one another uh, rather than this tremendously competitive, selfish idea that we're all in it just for our own individual good? Yeah. You know, when I when I think about this, it's a lot easier to imagine a society that's isolated and that's mm-hmm. what aldous huxley did in ireland oh this is the island you know yeah that had these principles and it developed from there but what's more difficult when you're talking about a utopian society is not how does that society look which is an awesome exercise and i think vitally mm-hmm. important but it's how to get from here to there yeah you know like how do we get from <laughs> what we got now to there and I'm, I'm generally optimistic. The mm-hmm. one thing that makes me pessimistic is we have so many people. You know, it's just like, it's such a big, it's just so many numbers mm-hmm. out there, you know. Do you think about that? Like that transition from, you know, how that would, how that could potentially play out? Yeah. Um, when I'm not writing, the other thing I do is I uh, teach and practice permaculture, which is a whole integrated system of ecological design. And one of the sayings we have in the permaculture movement is the problem is the solution. So Mm -hmm. I always say, I'm not sure that's always true, but it always makes you look at the situation more creatively. Mm -hmm. So if you say, how can that problem be a solution? Well, we have lots and lots and lots of people. Yeah. Um, But if we look at people not as a blight on the planet, but if we imagine that maybe people are uh, Mother Earth's way of creating like her healing hands and her appreciative eyes mm. and her compassionate heart, and we're just sort of, you know, we're just sort of like working our way to get there. Yeah. Uh, then all those people are a tremendous potential force for repairing the damage that we've done and regenerating the ecosystems around us. And I do, it's not just believe, I know that we have the potential, we have the capacity to restore damaged landscapes on a big scale if we look at nature, understand how nature works, and work in harmony instead of working against nature. Uh, I'll also say that one tried and true method of population control, not control, but of reducing overpopulation has been the education and empowerment of women. Yeah. Uh, when women are empowered and educated and when uh, society offers the hope and promise that if you have only one or two kids, they're likely to live to grow up and not die of malnutrition or war or violence, uh, then that problem kind of adjusts itself. Sure. And open conversations about sex. Yeah. You know, like really understanding, Mm -hmm. you know, this this oppression and putting sex in this guilty framework Mm -hmm. where it's, uh, you know, nobody wants to talk about it. And if a nipple slips out on TV, it's a national crisis (laughs) for three. We all we all nursed on nipples, all of us. Like, let's just get over it. Like, Uh you know, when you put when you do that, then you create situations where people are accidentally having children at a far higher rate because they don't have the information. They don't have the resources. They're not talking about it. They don't they're not practicing conscious lovemaking. They're doing it quick and dirty in a hurry and, and wherever they are. I mean, not always, of course, but that's that's what happens when you push mm-hmm. something that's natural like that into the dark. And I think that's a major issue that we've had. And obviously in your book, you know, the the differences between, you know, the cultural norms around uh-huh. sex yeah. from the North and the South are dramatically different. And same in Aldous Huxley's book, Island, mm-hmm. between Paula and and the mainland, you know, it's, and I think that's a crucial, mm-hmm. crucial thing to, to do something and deny our, our nature, our sexual nature like that is going to have negative ramifications. 
You know, I've been uh, also involved in goddess religion and the revival of the old earth-based spirituality uh, for decades. And for me, I got involved as a young woman, and part of that was the idea of being able to see the divine, be able to see the sacred as in female form, first of all, is tremendously empowering to me mm-hmm. as a young woman. But also along with that went the idea that sexuality is something sacred, not something dirty and something to be suppressed. Yeah. I always really liked that idea. Yeah, that's a way better plan. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> yeah. Made sense to me anyway. Yeah. And for me, I guess it's always been a theme and sort of a sub-theme there in the writing is like, what would a sexuality look like if we really experienced it as a healing force mm-hmm. rather than as a dangerous, dirty, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it's a weird time we live in because, you know, in the absence of positive information that people are really putting out there in a major way in a concerted effort, people are learning about sex through Google yeah. and, you know, big porn yeah. tube sites, you know, and it's like a weird, it's a weird transition where we haven't acknowledged that people are going to find that information. They're either going to get it from a positive source or we're going to leave them to their own devices, which is going to yield, you know, probably not the best role models yeah. in that field. And and it's, it's just funny how, you know, parents will just not acknowledge the fact that that's going on, that every, you know, 11, 12, 13, 14 year old with a phone is looking at yeah. whatever pornography has ever been created in the universe, you know, and they're not taking active steps, you know, they'll still tell them not to go to an R movie or, or, some, right. or like yeah. they won't have this discussion and like, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. You're trying to shelter your kid from from language or this this you know this sexual potentially situation. Like they're googling porn. Yeah, like you got you got to like come to the realization that this is a different world, and we have to put in positive information to counteract what else is out there. Yeah, and there's not very much out. You know, well, I will say this: we've made huge strides in many ways around sexual liberation around um liberation for lesbian and gay and transgendered mm-hmm. and gender fluid people and just the recognition that oh yes that is a whole aspect of sexuality that is natural it's part of human nature uh it is part of every society that's ever been and you know that is worlds beyond where it was say when i was young myself yeah. Um, but we still have a long way to go, and it's still hard to find a lot of real imagery around sexuality as a healing force that's yeah. out there to counter the kind of inherent violence and and um, objectification in a lot of pornography. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, you, you look at the education of of the youth and you mm-hmm. just think like what is really important well i'd put that up there pretty yeah pretty damn right. high you know like how to like how to navigate substances that are going to intoxicate you should be a major prerequisite class good, for right? every freshman how to how to <laughs> use sex as a healing force and a pleasurable force like okay uh-huh. that would be a prerequisite too like if you're like just taking all of the bullshit that we just take for god yeah. you can't do that in school whatever but if you just rebuilt it you know you'd be you'd have wise teachers and mm-hmm. masters who are providing this information in mass and then the the downstream effects of that would be huge yeah how to how to think critically about what you read on the internet exactly <laughs> you know how to filter through it and figure out what might be true and what might not be true <laughs> <All right. laughs> you know instead unfortunately our educational system has gone the opposite and is teaching less critical thinking and less engagement and much more like control and testing and on every level it's mm. i don't know if have you seen the latest michael moore movie i haven't oh no, it's wonderful it really it's where to invade next and he <laughs> goes all over europe mostly europe is it in but theaters other, now still um uh, i didn't get a big run in theaters so it okay off on if you can't find it there you can probably find it on itunes or netflix yeah um, but at one point, he goes to Finland, which ha- is has like the best educated population in the world. Like they're the highest on every measure. And he says, how much homework do your kids get? And they say, none. We don't do homework. 
<laughs> they go to school three or four hours a day. You know, they found that doing less, and they say kids need time to play and be kids and do other things. Blasphemy. Yeah. Right. More work, yeah. more homework. More control. Yeah. If I'm paying $15,000 yeah. for Johnny to go to school, I yeah. want him working 24 hours a day. Yeah. I want him stressed out. If he doesn't have ulcers mm -hmm. by 17, I'm done. And okay. I want him conditioned to think that that's what life is all about, constantly yeah. working and uh, delaying gratification. And, yeah. yeah. Heaven will come. Yeah. Earth is hell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, that that whole idea is just so preposterous. Mm -hmm. You know, this is this is the heaven or hell we make. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's really the truth of it. I think it's really important for people to have visions of alternatives, and that's one reason I write some of the stuff I do, you know, again, there isn't very much utopian fiction out there or no. movies, you know, it's all like Mad Max Fury Road or it's, you mm -hmm. know, uh, which I think is in many ways a brilliant movie, but it's not really a future anyone wants to live in. No. And that, um, that future gave me anxiety watching it as a movie. Yeah. <laughs> right. Let alone yeah. living in it. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I think it's hard, f especially for younger people, to feel optimistic. You know, I've been speaking at colleges and talking to a lot of young people on this tour, and I hear a lot from people like, how do I look into the future and have any hope? You know, how do I have any... Uh, sometimes I get the feeling people feel almost guilty if they're not cynical and pessimistic. Like, mm -hmm. I must be, you know, missing something. And... Uh, I feel like how can we actually create the future that we want unless we can at least imagine it? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, it's that a magical comes, that, teaching. It always comes you know? first. A spiritual principle that you have to be able to envision something before you can create it. And you envision it and then you put energy into that and that's what makes something manifest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think... Um I think it's Dr. Joe Dispenza. Are you uh -huh. familiar with his work? No. He talks about envisioning. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's that combination of belief with intent. You yes. Know, it's that, it's that super-powered belief. Mm -hmm. You know, and that really, he talks about it in the context of, you know, medical stories. He has like mm -hmm. over 100 clinical trials where people have healed themselves via the placebo effect, which is mm -hmm. really that force of utilizing belief to heal the body. And he treats it, you know, that's one of those things that, um, people just discard that. They say, oh, that's the placebo effect. But mm -hmm. when you really look at it, what's the one thing that's treated every single disease known to man, every condition? Oh, the placebo effect has. So what's uh -huh. that? That's your mind. Yeah. So your mind has cured absolutely everything, but nobody wants to pay attention to that. Mm -hmm. Everyone wants to just discard that and disregard the placebo effect. Like I understand the necessity to disregard the placebo effect when you're testing a supplement. You know, we do yeah. that in our trials, double blind, randomized, mm -hmm. important. Got it. But on the other hand, why don't we work with that thing that's 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 made that happen? So, you know, and he talks a lot about envisioning and that's mm -hmm. creating that reality and believing it, not just thinking it may be a possibility, but really believing it. And that's what's going to inspire people. I mean, if you go out there and you're talking about that future and you believe that that future is going to happen, that's infectious and other people will believe it and then they'll take action as if it was going to happen and that's going to be so 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 much stronger i think it's also important to really you know really be telling people like we could have a future i mean yes things are dire and maybe things are worse than we even suspected but they could be better than mm -hmm. we have ever imagined the problem is the solution mm -hmm. and you have an important part to play in that yeah. You know, you are here for a reason at this particular time and moment in history. And you need to discover what that reason is, what your unique contribution is to this world so that you can be, uh, so that you can make it. Yeah. And we need to find ways to support one another uh, in that journey and each of us being able to make the best contribution that we can. Yeah, 100%. 
Well, even today, you know, I had that bit of pessimism, but just this conversation alone has uh-huh. just eradicated that. So I'm going full oh, optimism now, Starhawk, <laughs> right. because you're right. Like, I mean, uh-huh. that's a brilliant way to look at things. You know, I've always looked at, you know, resistance as assistance, the old stoic uh-huh. philosophy, you know, like whatever is the obstacle is the way. That's my, uh-huh. my friend Ryan Holiday wrote a book with that title. But I didn't look at it in that context like you would in permaculture. Oh, you got too many of this tree. What's the, you know, yeah. what's, uh-huh. that's the problem. Well, that's the solution. Yeah. You know, uh-huh. what are you going to do with that tree to, to make sure that the whole ecosystem thrives? You know, you got too many of this animal. That's uh-huh. the, that's the solution. And uh, I love that way of looking at it because I've seen people transform. You know, I've been on a lot uh-huh. of these journeys. I've been around, you know, the consciousness movement for a long time and pushing that as part of my life's mission. Mm-hmm. So I've seen that happen and I've seen the power of that and I've seen how hard it is. You know, it's hard for hard to change yeah. yourself, you know, let alone yes. help guide another person to change. But I've seen it happen. So that gives me optimism. It gives me optimism for the planet. Um, and now with that final piece, like, all right, instead of looking at these things as detriments, all right, we got nuclear power plants, we got people. I always thought of those like, oh man, that's a big problem. You know? Yes. But yeah. maybe that's a big solution mm-hmm. waiting to happen. Yeah, and asking, like, well, what could this possibly be the solution to? Yeah. Sometimes, like I said, it always makes you look at the problem more creatively. Yeah, that's great. Let's go into, I want to go into the medical side again. I mentioned it Mm -hmm. from Dr. Dispenza's point of view, but you have a really interesting way that Maya is a healer in this book. And, you know, from my languaging, it would be that she's going into the the astral or that other dimension, Mm -hmm. the reflection of the material, and she's fixing problems in that space, in that plane, and then, which is fixing problems in the material plane. Is that something that is just part of the story for, for color, or is that something that you kind of explore as a possibility? Uh, it's definitely one of the old, you know, shamanic methods of healing. Sure. And Madrone, who's the healer in the book. Yeah, Madrone, uh, sorry, I said mine. Uh, she does exactly that. It's like she goes into the astral plane, the spirit plane, the chi world, as she calls it sometimes. Mm-hmm. The, um, the idea that there are... Um, that every disease, every entity, every species has a kind of oversoul. As the Hawaiians would call it the almakua. Or, mm-hmm. you know, it has a kind of group entity, group beingness. Like, and that if you can address that, then it can have reverberations in the physical world. Yeah. Uh, and I can't say that I uh, have can do it on the level Madrone does in the books. Um, but it's definitely something I've explored. And there's also, you know, there are many different traditional forms of energetic healing. Uh, mm-hmm. There's that one. There's also just working directly with the energy itself, the sort of, you could call it the etheric energy, and combing it out, moving it out, cleansing it. Um, and then there's also... Uh, one technique she tries, which is n- not the most advisable one, of really sucking the disease in, taking it into herself, and then attempting to heal it within herself. Yeah. Which, well, you see uh, these different practices in like the ayahuasca shamans. Uh-huh. You know, they have a practice called chupando, where they mm-hmm. actually yeah. suck something up, but they spit it out right away. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they don't they don't keep it in there and try and fix it within uh-huh. themselves. But that's that's their philosophy. That's their entire paradigm of healing. Mm-hmm. It's built upon doing yeah. exactly what you say. And for someone who's been in those journeys, you mm-hmm. know, from the materialist reductionist point of view, this may all sound super woo woo and like, mm-hmm. oh whatever. But, you know, you go to these other cultures and they've they thrive and and on healing practices surrounding this. And then you participate in ceremonies Mm -hmm. like this where you feel shifts happen. And whether that's created from the mind, as I mentioned, with the power of the placebo effect, the power of the mind to heal the body, which is indisputable Mm -hmm. that the mind can heal the body. And whether it's just that, or whether it's something else, something, you know, deeper and another truth that we can't, you know, right now at least put down to 
quantum atoms and figure out what it is from Mm -hmm. that point of view. Maybe we just don't have the ability to, to show that yet, but something else is happening. And I think keeping your mind open to that possibility, because once you've been there and experienced some different things like that, it starts to shift your mind and you see these healers in action in real life. And you're like, well, maybe there is something to this. And you understand, I mean, Western culture and Western science is very much based on this kind of materialism that Mm -hmm. um, nothing's real unless it can be quantified and measured, and that's all that we can really discuss and talk about. And we can't admit anything like consciousness or soul or spirit into the equation because they're subjective. You can't quantify them. Um, Actually, even that Western science... Uh, I have a friend named David Kubrin who's uh, done a lot of work and research over the years is writing a book now on Marxism and witchcraft. Uh, He's been a big influence on my thinking. He really is trying to be popular. Yeah, Yeah. He's he's running a great popularity contest for the world. (laughs) I'm sure Trump would love to meet him. But he started (laughs) off as an Isaac Newton scholar Mm -hmm. and realized that even though Isaac Newton in this in a sense is like the father of this materialist rationalist science actually he was an alchemist and actually he believed in all of the in a sort of ensouled nature and spirited nature and that <coughs> there were the all of these different philosophies at that time um, that believed nature was alive, that still held to that kind of picture of the world, which every other human society down through history has held in some form or another. And he had to suppress them because of the politics of the time, that all of those things were starting to be seen as dangerous to the social order and dangerous Mm -hmm. to the rise of capitalism at that time. There's an, there's, you know, there's an evolution to things that I think generally takes place. And I think you have to discard when Mm -hmm. the world is rife with superstitions. Yeah. It's hard to just cut out just the tumor, Yeah, you know, like, and then leave everything Mm -hmm. else intact. You end up discarding everything else. Like, all right, look, we're out of control here. We think, Uh we think that these deities are going to throw us in hell. You know, you got Bosch making paintings of crazy, (laughs) like, all right, let's let's get superstition out of here for a Mm -hmm. little while. Right. And. And in that, and when when they did that, I think obviously they overstepped because there's a lot of things that are yet to be proven and yet to be shown. Mm-hmm. But I'm encouraged by you know a lot of the research in quantum physics because yeah. they're finding different parallels now as you get smaller and smaller and our detection abilities get better and better. Uh, and I think that trend will continue. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you see these phenomenon like quantum entanglement and the observer effect, and it's like. It doesn't make any. It doesn't make any sense, you know, and and that's and I think as we start to really develop more cohesive theories surrounding mm-hmm. all of this, I think we. I think there will be you know materialist um, examples that we can show from some of these things that right now are in this etheric kind of spiritual category that we just don't have the ability to detect things on that level. But, you know, as Hermes Trismegistus says, as above, so below, you know, as within, so without, I believe that all of these things are connected. We just have to figure out what the connection is and how to measure it. And that'll happen. It's another thing I always enjoy, you know, speculating about and that kind of weaves its way into the writing and the books. It's like, what would science be like if it admitted consciousness? Yeah. You know, and the fifth sacred thing, they have a whole computer network that shuts down during the invasion. Partly it shuts down during the invasion because when I was writing it in the 80s and 90s, we didn't have all these, you know, we just had new computers were this new thing. And, yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. You know, I hadn't done a lot of thinking about how they were going to influence all of life and didn't really want to deal with them really in the book. But, you know, the idea is they shut down because to make them work, you have to cooperate with them. They have to like you. And if they don't like you, they won't work for you. <laughs> and yeah. uh, being not like the most techno type person myself, you I find tend that to, happens. I regularly. find that happens. <laughs> I remember particularly back, like back in the old PC days, that would happen all the time. Yeah, I mean, computer fresh. Right? Like, what is going on here? You know, it's but like, please, please don't <laughs> crash on me now. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. You have to give Apple some credit though, because uh-huh. they really changed that paradigm. I don't, uh-huh. I don't get nervous anymore when I start my computer. You know, I know that thing's going to turn on and fire up. They've done a good job of that. Um, yeah. So let's explore some of the other topics in the book that I really appreciated. One of which was the creating your own rituals around mm-hmm. things. And that's, I think, another area that I've been, I talk about it a lot, but you know, I think we, we just kind of take for granted the rituals that, mm-hmm. that come in. You know, this is this holiday, so we do, the, oh, it's Valentine's. Well, you got to buy yeah. the chocolates and you do this thing and, you know, there's there's the lingerie and this is Halloween. Okay, mm-hmm. well, you dress in this costume and the candy and marriage, death, all of these things we just kind of accept like you would accept a stock contract for your business, but you, you never want to do, you know, right. you want to create it so that it fits you and serves you and your society and your tribe even better. So I thought that was really cool. And I remember one of the, one of the rituals was the, um, I think it was like the Halloween ritual or mm-hmm. the all hollows ritual. Yeah. And so is that, is that influenced, you know, by some of your knowledge of, you know, pagan rituals and, yes, and some I of mean, that culture? That's something I've been doing for many, many <clears throat> years now. Um, when, you know, back in the 70s and the early 80s, a lot of us were kind of coming out of the activism around the Vietnam War and saying, like, now what? What's next? Um, we're starting to do environmental and anti-nuclear activism. But we're also kind of hungry for some connection to spirit. Uh, but something that like didn't make us disengage from the world that said, mm-hmm. you know, these issues we're struggling with, these are spiritual issues as well. And many of us were looking back into some of those old European traditions around the goddesses. Uh, we were looking at witchcraft as the continuance of those pre-Christian healing traditions and land-based worship traditions in Europe and in the Middle East. Um, got a bad rap from the Catholic Church. <laughs> yeah, more, more but, than a bad rap. Yeah, right. Much more than a bad rap. It got severely suppressed and persecuted. In uh, I heard a figure that, you know, something like five million, quote, witches were burned at the stake or, or executed during the times of the Inquisition and the, and the Catholic oppression. And you think about the effects of that yeah. downstream. I mean, all of that knowledge. I mean, what is a witch? A witch is mm-hmm. a woman who's in her power working with the plants and healing people in general. Yeah. You know, there's probably some other kind of darker form of witchcraft you know it's certainly from the shamanic perspective there's you know you don't want to run into one of those down in the deep jungle you know and i'm sure there's probably some of those in europe as Mm -hmm. there is in peru you know i'm not going to say that that wasn't the case but most of the time it's just herbalists people working with the plants people thinking outside the box Mm -hmm. and all of those knowledge traditions smashed five million women with that knowledge killed and then everything else drawn way underground rather than out in the light so that information could breed with information and create new information in Mm -hmm. this natural process of things that are supported and even more i mean nobody's really knows about the actual numbers but the impact it's kind of like the war on terrorism today you know the um the actual numbers of terrorists you know compared to the population are extremely small and then even the numbers of people um you know accused of it aren't that big in terms of the population but the impact of constantly being on the alert for that has reverberates through every aspect of life yeah and uh it was similar it wasn't even how many witches they killed it was the fact that anyone could be accused yeah and it could be used against you whether there was any basis for it or not. Oftentimes it was used against a woman who just had property somebody else wanted. Because if someone was accused of being a witch, it was kind of like there is no, you know, if you denied it, that was proof that you just weren't repentant. You yeah. Know, right? No, no, there was, there was really good tests. Like they had that one test where they threw you in the water and if you drowned, you weren't a witch. Sorry. (laughs) But if you swam, you're clearly a witch. So yeah, it was, uh, no confirmation bias there. Right. (laughs) It's either die innocent Mm -hmm. or die guilty. And so the, the impact I think was to create this tremendous underlying fear that I believe is still with us in a lot of ways around 
any of those ideas, uh, again, of nature being alive, of the earth being sacred, of herbalism and traditional medicines and healing methods and all these things as being somehow suspect and dangerous. I think a lot of that is shifting today, um, but I think still it's hard for people on the way I think it's embedded in our unconsciousness. For women, it's often about if I stand up, if I speak out, if I really am here present in my full power, will I be cut down? You know, it's mm-hmm. almost a a fear in the DNA that comes up. Yeah. And I think for all of us, it's sort of like, oh, if I go too far into these strange ideas, you know, it was safer to retreat into sheer materialism because mm-hmm. then I don't have to deal with these things that now trigger these deep, deep unconscious memories of um, fear and persecution around the idea that the stuff we're dealing with here on Earth might actually be alive and have a consciousness it's different from ours, but a consciousness yeah. that's very real. Well, you know, that is the perspective that you get when you do yeah. enough work <laughs> you know, yeah. around it. You start to feel those things. You start to talk to the mm-hmm. overminds of these things. I mean, I've had discussions with the overmind of mosquitoes. Yeah. I didn't plan that. <laughs> that wasn't something I wanted to have happen, but it's just one of the one of the ways it uh-huh. goes when you start uh, to, to traverse these realms. But I think you make a great point about, you know, the that kind of aspect Uh of of women and i think men men are inherently i think people are violent towards that which they're afraid of yeah and i think that a woman in her full power is Mm -hmm. terrifying to a man who's not you know conscious and and is scared of these different different things that they don't Mm -hmm. understand the the ability to come to knowledge without logic just come to knowledge Mm -hmm. with intuition alone and all of these other attributes that can be part of the sacred feminine you know um but you know so society which is through the media and through a variety of things is very you know, still male dominant mm. you know i think has instilled combination with these ancestral fears you get you know particularly i see a lot of women who are so focused on the youth and beauty aspect which mm-hmm. is just one stage of womanhood and not focused on the maturing into their magic into their power yeah you know and that's that's truly, truly unfortunate mm-hmm. because each stage has inherent beauty and value if you, if you value it as such. But if you're, you know, no matter how old you get, you're still trying to be the 21-year-old yeah. flirty, you know, flirty girl, you're missing the boat. You, yeah. know? you should be a powerful, powerful goddess in, mm-hmm. you know, in, in, your, in the bloom of that, you know, be able to do all of those things that come with that stage and that should be the goal for that stage and of course you get a million messages constantly and advertising and everything else bombarding you saying you should look a certain way you should present yourself a certain way and uh for women and for men too um and certainly for anyone who's in between or gender fluid you know, there's not, there's starting to be a little bit more, but there's not much in the culture that really affirms you that says, you know, the way you are is how you should be, right? Mm. And the question is, how do you take what you are and what you're given and, again, develop it to the fullest so that you can you can make that contribution, you can give that gift you came here to give. Yeah, And it's not really about the brand of perfume that you buy no. or the makeup you put on your face. Or, optimization is not homogenization. Yeah. You know, it's it's bringing out your own unique gifts. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really important way to look at it, for sure. What are your thoughts on, and it's a topic explored in the book, the differences around the structure of monogamy that we have in this culture and how that, how that affects society and mm-hmm. particularly women from your perspective? Well, I think in the fifth sacred thing, um, I was really exploring ideas about, you know, what would it like be like to be in a society where sexuality and relationships were not connected to the idea of ownership? Mm-hmm. You know, um, how would that play out, and um, where people could really affirm like a whole kind of multiplicity of sexualities um, where it's not just you have to be 
one man, one woman <laughs> tied together forever. Yeah. Yeah. And uh yeah, I don't know how that plays out for people in life, in real life today. I sometimes worry that people will read the stuff in the book and go like, oh, she's telling me I should go do this or <laughs> not, right? You know, it's uh, always easy to experiment in fiction um, without the consequences you face in real life. But I feel like younger people today, I think, really uh, are less bound into these set roles than it, certainly the era. I mean, I was born in 1951. I mm-hmm. was raised as a child of the 50s and the early 60s. All you have to do is like watch an episode of Mad Men and you'll <laughs> understand like, why there was a feminist revolution. Yeah. Um, and so um, you'll in the city of refuge, uh, there's actually a whole long scene set in the temple of love <laughs> i won't spoil it for you but it sort of takes that idea of sexuality and healing and pushes it again to its edge and it's not so much that i'm saying you should go set this up and do it but it's more you know what would our imagination be like if we freed it from these sort of boundaries of you must do it this way and this is the only way yeah. that it can be i'd like to look at it you know i always as you do like to ascend to the most conscious perspective uh-huh. you know and work backwards from that what's the most conscious perspective well mm-hmm. the idea that you own another person's pleasure yeah. is inherently unconscious you know like yeah. how could the, how could somebody else's pleasure mm-hmm. hurt you it's it's like it's logically uns- unsustainable to believe mm-hmm. that, oh, this person's pleasure is causes pain for me. Pleasure is pleasure. Love mm-hmm. is love. But again, once you get possession and ego and identity mm-hmm. all, all wrapped up into that, then someone's pleasure or love can create, you know, create immense pain for mm-hmm. you, and at least through the ego. And, and I, think, I think that's, you know, but the most conscious perspective is mm-hmm. not ownership. And at the same time, I kind of believe there's a phase in life where people want to explore sexuality and you're just flooded with hormones and you just really want to do everything, try everything. Mm -hmm. And then there's a phase in life where it actually may be appropriate to just say, you know what, you know, I'm going to settle down with this person and really dive into this relationship. And uh, maybe I no longer have to go like, jump into bed with every cute person I see because <laughs> I've done that. You know, right? sure. I know like, you know, it's not all that different no matter yeah. who you're doing it with. And well, actually, I want to really make a commitment. Yeah. But I actually believe that kind of commitment is stronger if it's not forced, if exactly. it's not like you have to be this way, you know, because uh, anything else is bad and wrong and evil. You know, if it comes out of saying like, you know, this is a point in our development and our maturity where, um, you know, we have, I mean, really, people have so much going on in life, it's hard to have the time and energy to develop fully more than, you know, you can't just, you can't, I always used to say when I was younger, <laughs> mm-hmm. never have more than one lover at a time or less than five. <laughs> <laughs> Because, you know, if you really want to develop a relationship, it's good to have that focus. Yeah. And uh, if you really want to just madly explore, then great, go ahead and do that. Where you get into trouble is where you've got two or three and they're all (laughs) bouncing against each other and fighting with each other. And yeah. Well, any situation can be positive, you know, depending on what the different parties you know bring to it yeah um for sure i think i liken it to like yeah. I, when i was younger the first time i swam with dolphins i swam with dolphins uh-huh. in a cove where they were free to come and they uh-huh. just knew that these researchers were there and the researchers were very kind and uh-huh. they were learning from the dog and the dolphins just showed up so you could cruise yeah. over and most likely you would get an encounter with the dolphins so uh-huh. i was there and i was good swimmer i had my fins on and i was mm-hmm. just i just paired up with this one dolphin wow. and i was just cruising around it's one of the best experiences of my life wow. just a real connection uh-huh. with this dolphin and 
so that just kind of blew my mind. I was wide open. And anytime I got a chance to swim with dolphins, I wanted to do it. Well, the next time I was in a different state and I went to like a sea world type mm-hmm. of thing. And this dolphin was forced to swim with every different oh, individual, yeah. right? You mm-hmm. know, forced, they were confined and that's how mm-hmm. they got fed. And it was a radically different experience. Yeah. You know, both, both times I was swimming with mm-hmm. dolphins, but one time the dolphin was free and it was just us paired yeah. off. And then some of the time I was paired off with a dolphin, but it wasn't free. It was compelled yeah. and it was forced and it lost all the magic. And I think, I think that's absolutely right. Like a monogamous container mm-hmm. can be incredibly beautiful and rewarding, but if it's done mm-hmm. as, you know, if you're forced to do it, yeah, it loses its magic, yeah. you know, whereas even just knowing that mm-hmm. both of you are free, you know, will yeah. foster a, a deeper passion and a deeper love because I think it's the most conscious perspective and mm-hmm. that fire will stay hotter than if you try to confine it and bottle it up and allow the jealousy to create these walls. And as, you know, I think I've said this in a previous podcast, but as Don Miguel Ruiz, one of my mm. favorite teachers describes, it becomes the relationship becomes the monster that eats love, mm. you know, rather than just fostering it and being the the bedrock and the soil that allows, you know, the flowers to grow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So <clears throat> all of these, you know, all of these topics are kind of woven in. I wanted to ask you quickly, it was a very interesting episode with bees yeah. <laughs> and Madrone in there. Where did that kind of come from? What was that? Is that just a, a vision you had or was that some imagination? Well, at the time when I was writing the book, uh, my mother lived in LA. She was sick a lot I was spending a lot of time down there trying to take care of her and uh, I have an old friend David Abram who's an amazing writer and thinker uh, around ecology he wrote a book called The Spell of the Sensuous uh, which is a very important book and at one point in his life he was a stage magician and he got some kind of grant to go to Indonesia and Nepal and study with traditional shamans and sort of meet the magician to magician Mm -hmm. and had these incredible experiences, just really, you know, amazing experiences where what would happen is he's going to town and do some sleight of hand magic and people would not believe him when he said it was a trick. They would believe he was a magician who had powers and they'd be like wanting him to bless their children or their fishing boats or cure their diseases. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, but anyway, he had come up with this theory that when when they were like in Bali, when they make offerings to the spirits, and the ants come and eat them, like the ants actually are the spirits, that it's not about supernatural powers, it's about connecting with the actual natural powers of what's around you. Mm -hmm. And he was in L.A., and we took a hike up in the canyons one day, and um, I was talking about the book and what I was formulating, and there were all these beehives. Mm -hmm. And he was saying, like, maybe you could do something with the bees. And so I started to think about that and went back and started to learn about bees and read about bees and was amazed at, I mean, when you actually read the biology of the bee, it's pretty incredible. Yeah. You know, it it raises those questions about consciousness that scientists don't like to ask. But, you know, the bee is born knowing what to do. You know, they take on these different tasks and these different things and they... Um, do that from birth and they go through different stages and um, it's just it's a hive consciousness Um, and you kind of go well if there is nothing no such thing as consciousness how can this hive consciousness actually exist in all these separate individual bodies yeah so that got me thinking about bees and meditating on bees and thinking about what kind of healing might they have in a place where they really had no resources. And uh, that was where the bee stuff came from. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think, you know, I think there's also been some explorations that I've seen where you see a school of fish uh-huh. and that school of fish they all turn at exactly the same time. Yeah. You know, they're just cruising around and boom, left turn. Mm-hmm. Like every single one in line 
you know, at the same moment. And you see these things like that. And like, how does that happen you yeah. know, without this kind of collective consciousness? But then, you know, you start to look at these things like quantum entanglement where, mm-hmm. you know, different particles at the exact same moment separated on different sides of the planet. If yeah. you alter the movement of one, it will alter the movement of the other. So then all of a sudden this mysterious thing that has no materialist base mm-hmm. say, oh, well, maybe there there is these quantum connections. And for me, it's easier because I've. I believe that we're all connected in another Mm -hmm. dimension, you know, which I've, you know, experienced myself personally. But even in this one, you know, at the very smallest level of these particles, it's very possible that, you know, all of these bees share some, you know, share some aspects of, you know, the atomic structure and Mm -hmm. also, you know, perhaps on the consciousness level. So it certainly makes sense to me. You know, the scientist who talks about that is Rupert Sheldrake. Yeah, the morphic resonance. Yeah, I love his stuff. Me too. He has this one great book that's something about 10 questions science doesn't want. 10 common things, you know, yeah. like dogs who know when their owners have left work, even though yeah. they have no way of knowing it. <laughs> All right. And I've seen that happen in <clears throat> ritual, you know, over and over and over again. Like you'll have a whole group of 100 people singing and chanting together and the, and the chant will come to an end. It'll stop. And it's not like there's a director saying, okay, one, two, three, stop. Mm-hmm. It just, everyone, it, because we're linked and we're connected in that deep level, uh, it's like the chant has a life and a form of its own that we're all following. Yeah. I've seen it with freestyle drummers. Yeah. You know, the, the people changing rhythm. Yeah. Perfectly in unison together. A song they've never practiced. People yeah. they've never met. Just beating the drums and all of a sudden, boom, different mm-hmm. direction. You know, it's... There's a lot more to things that that we can't explain. I feel like we're going through a big shift in paradigms now, or attempting to as a society, as an overarching culture, that really, if you could boil it all down, it's from seeing the world as separated, isolated objects to understanding the world as a web of relationships. And that's going on at those deep levels of science with quantum physics, uh, it's going on in psychology, which I also studied, where people are, you know, looking not just at the individual, but at family therapy and mm. the relational webs that you're in. Uh, it's going on in ecology, where it's understanding it's not separate, isolated species, it's whole ecosystems and how they co-evolve together. And I just hope we can make the shift in time enough to <laughs> avoid destroying the world. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Get on with the business of regenerating and restoring it. Yeah. So what, let's, you know, we only have probably five, ten minutes Mm -hmm. left here. What are some kind of practical tips, either from permaculture or rituals that Mm -hmm. you've really found or meditation practices that you found particularly beneficial? Maybe we'll take these one at a time. If everybody just wants to start some small little bit of permaculture. Uh Uh-huh. You know, what, what do you recommend? Where's a good place to start? Well, I always recommend this both for permaculture and also for spiritual connection. Anything else is to start by giving yourself time for your own relationship with nature. Um, start with a personal practice of spending some time in nature every day, even if that's only like five minutes while you're waiting for the bus or something. Mm-hmm. But putting yourself in a state of awareness where you can open up and watch and look and listen to what nature is telling you and really paying attention to um, what you see, what you hear, what you smell, what you taste, even to those physical senses. Yeah. Um, because if you do that, you'll start to understand that nature is always communicating to us. And if you open yourself to that communication, I believe it feeds you on a deep level and on an energetic level. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then the second thing I would say is think about what's sacred to you. Like what is it, not sacred in the sense of what you bow down to, but in the sense of what you most deeply care about. And what you care about that you care about more than your own personal convenience or comfort or pleasure. Um, You know, what is it you're passionate about and find a way to put your best life energies at its service. Mm-hmm. Um, and the third thing is connect with other people around it. 
you know, both to celebrate it, but also to protect it, to defend it, to organize around it. And then the fourth thing I would probably say is educate yourself. Like, read about these things. Uh, Take some courses. Come take a permaculture design course. Mm -hmm. Uh, Come take one of ours. We teach them all the time. Learn in the deep level so that you have skills and tools to bring to the work. All very good advice, but mm-hmm. you can't end on four things when your book is called <laughs> The Fifth Sacred Thing. So you got to dig one more up, Starhawk. Come on, we can't end with four. It doesn't make sense. One, fi- one final tip from the magic bag here. Well, what I was going to say for the fifth is uh, you need to really envision what you want. I believe we do need to stand up against what we don't want. That mm-hmm. There are times we have to resist it. We have to just say no to the atrocities that are going on. But I think our no is always stronger when we know what the yes is. So know what your yes is. Know what is the world that you want, the vision that you're working towards. And then do the work that you need to do, uh, again, to ally with other people, uh, to organize together, and to create it. Beautiful. Well, everybody, I hope you appreciated and enjoyed this as much as I do. Please, if you get a chance and listen to this, read The Fifth Sacred Thing, read City of Refuge. I'm going to start reading it, so I'll read Uh it along with you. Um, Books available, Amazon, bookstores, um, through your website, too? My website is starhawk.org, and yeah, there's links there to where you can get the book and also to... Uh, the writings, you know, I have written 12 other books mm-hmm. that you can find there. And uh, we do teach permaculture design courses. We do courses in social permaculture and how we apply these principles to people. Um, I do a lot of talks and workshops and things all the time. So you can find all of that there. And, Starhawk.org. Starhawk.org. Make it happen. <laughs> yeah. So much love, everybody. Peace. I'd like to acknowledge the company that is the expression of so many things I love, onnit.com, O-N-N-I-T.com, and also wearspace.com with two S's, putting out some really dope clothes and supporting my favorite charities. Lastly, please check out my blog, aubreymarcus.com, for the latest in all the ventures happening in my world. If you enjoyed the podcast, tell a friend, leave a review, and let's make this positivity contagious. Thanks for tuning in.